This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hey, Tim. Hey, Carol. So week 51, I don't know if you've looked at a calendar lately, but we are almost a year into it when it comes to a lot of folks still working from home. It's unbelievable, but at the same time, believable. Right, considering what a year it's been, right? Yeah. And we're not quite out of the woods, but I do feel like we made a lot of progress continue to when it comes to vaccines. I mean, we've now got, what, three in the U.S. That's right. A lot of vaccine news this week from President Biden saying there will be enough vaccine for all Americans by May to this unusual collaboration between those two pharma competitors. Merck working with J&J to help make that third vaccine that you mentioned. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. That was one of the important developments. And I got to say, in this hour of Bloomberg Business Week on the weekend, we are all in when it comes to COVID and the vaccine. We're going to catch up with the CEO of Northwell Health, his thoughts on the rollout of J&J single shot vaccine and when we could get back to some sort of normal. I'm just going to say we're going to have to wait a little bit for that. Ooh. Hmm. Plus. And the poor sort of pores community, um, some of them have not even received one dose of the vaccine. The founder of the Impact Network, Bishop Wayne Jackson, was back with us. He talked about the plight and progress being made in the black community, Tim, when it comes to COVID, but we also talked about progress or lack thereof when it comes to the society at large. Also, I do think there'll be part of the world where a certain amount of people work from home permanently. J.P. Morgan Chase Chair and CEO Jamie Dimon in that Bloomberg exclusive on the virus. Getting back to work, he talked about so much more. The conversation among the most listened to, watched, and read about on the Bloomberg terminal. And I got to say, a year after that health huh. scare, he's feeling good. He is feeling good. And I've got to say, in our world, he's one of those individuals that goes by, we could almost just say one name, Jamie. Jamie had some comments. It's like Madonna or, or Beyonce. Like in our world, you talk about Jamie and everybody's like, you're talking about Jamie Dimon. Yeah, look, and there's a reason it was like the most read about interview, the most watched, the most listened to, because he had a lot to say. He did. He did. It was really a must watch and a must listen. All right. All of that to come. We got to begin, though, Tim, with this week's cover story. It is inside Pfizer's fast, fraught and lucrative vaccine distribution. Listen, Pfizer's a company that has been hailed as a hero, but it's making entire countries pretty angry. The story written by Stephanie Baker, Cynthia Coons and Vernon Silver. Stephanie, a Bloomberg News financial investigations writer, joined us along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber for a deep dive into the deep dive. I think the Pfizer um, shot and vaccine is one of the biggest success stories uh, ever, (laughs) frankly. I mean, like (laughs) to go from um, a pandemic to a vaccine in a year is uh, is a wonder. And we've we've written about that. But what we hadn't ever explored um, and what Stephanie and and her co-author Cynthia uh, dove into the, in this story is is sort of the behind the scenes um, logistics and distribution challenges, and and also keep in mind here like the Pfizer is a publicly traded company that did not take money from the government, and because of that, they didn't have any strings on on how they went about even pricing that, and that I thought was a really interesting angle. Uh, and one that, you know, it, it speaks to also just the legacy of what we know about the pharmaceutical industry, mm-hmm. uh, which pricing has always been um, a, an issue with. And it was actually the issue that um, Albert Borla, who's the CEO of Pfizer, was expecting to deal with when he took over the job at Pfizer a year before the pandemic happened. 
So, so uh, Stephanie, I, I, I just want to turn it over to you because I, I thought so much of the reporting in this was was spot on and really interesting. And, and tell us, how does Pfizer going up, go about deciding who gets the vaccine? Well, you know, it, it's a pretty opaque process still, despite all our digging. I think it is a, a mix of your place in the queue, when did you get your order in, your order size, production forecast, calls from world leaders. Um, you know, our, we went into detail about how Israel managed to get its hands on so many doses. And as you know, Israel is uh, a world leader in terms of vaccination rates, and that is thanks to Pfizer, because they are almost exclusively using Pfizer for their vaccination campaign. And uh, Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, spoke to uh, Pfizer CEO Albert Borla more than 20 times. Um, uh, and you know, one of the reasons why Israel got priority access was, well, A, it paid more, paid about $30 a dose, about 50% more than the U.S. did, and B, it um, offered to use Israel as a real-world case study for how effective the vaccine is. And that has um, generated a stream of positive headlines about how effective the Pfizer vaccine is. Um, you know, Israel was vaccinating 16 to 18-year-olds at a time when Europe was still waiting to vaccinate 80-year-olds. And that's kind of what we went into is how did that happen? Um, why was Europe... Uh, so behind uh, in terms of Pfizer's distribution and, and why did Israel pull ahead? And really, it came down to these uh, few things. Uh, the EU, the European Union, of course, was late to place their order. That was one factor. But, um, you know, Israel obviously offered a very unique opportunity for the company to showcase how great their vaccine is. A line in that story really stood out to me. It was vaccine distribution still has the feel of a zero sum game. It feels like that kind of everywhere, right? If 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 you hear about somebody kind of cutting in line for a vaccine, yeah. you know they're taking in a vaccine from somebody who, who may need it more than them. Yeah, exactly. Listen, this is a story that for me answered so many questions that I've had about the vaccine rollout. It's a must read and you can find that story at Bloomberg.com slash Business Week on the Bloomberg Terminal and of course the cover story of the magazine which is on newsstands as we speak. That was Bloomberg News Financial Investigations writer Stephanie Baker along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. And coming up, we're going to stay with the coronavirus. We're going to talk to the CEO of the healthcare provider who saw the first COVID case in the U.S. and also administered the first vaccine in the U.S. His thoughts on getting back to normal. Well, all we got to say is we're going to be patient. Yeah, indeed. This stood out for us when we talked with him. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So, Tim, no shortage of virus headlines this week. I mean, listen, it's a normal week. There's a lot on COVID. There's a lot on the vaccines. All right. Well, you heard from Dr. Anthony Fauci, mm -hmm. as we do each and every week, it seems <laughs> like. He said it's, quote, quite reasonable to see some degree of normalcy by fall, Carol. Yeah. And I feel like one of the big stories this week was the Johnson & Johnson. Now it's a third vaccine for the U.S. It's getting rolled out. We heard President Biden talk about it and specifically talking about Merck and J&J. &J. Listen, these are two competitors in the big pharma world. They're going to work together to ramp up 
up production of J&J's vaccine. With all this news happening, we welcome back Michael Dowling. He's president and CEO at Northwell Health. They are, Tim, the largest healthcare provider and private employer in New York State. Look, and that's one of the reasons we really like to talk to Michael Dowling is the organization has such a big footprint. Mm -hmm. It's always nice to kind of see it as some sort of barometer for how we're doing in New York. On the virus itself, the numbers are decreasing. I now have about 900 COVID patients. About three weeks ago, I had 1,400. So the number is dropping, and the positivity in the region is dropping. So the signs are all good. And uh, the new J&J vaccine, of course, is a huge, huge step forward. And uh, we are expecting, uh, but I have been told that we may get some of the J&J vaccine later this week. Uh, The state is going to get a couple hundred thousands more uh, doses each week from now on. So that just increases the supply because the supply has been the biggest issue over the last um, number of weeks and months. Um, The infrastructure is there to do the vaccination. The supply has been the problem. And with J&J as a one-dose vaccine, it is just... uh, an unbelievable step forward. How do you determine if you, let's say you have, because you've already been administering vaccine. Yes. Uh, Michael, if, if, if you do have, let's say, Pfizer vaccine and Moderna vaccine and J&J vaccine, right. how do you determine who gets what vaccine? Well, there are criteria that are being developed, which we are getting about what the priorities are for, for, the, for the J&J vaccine. I think it's for people over age 65. I think it's for the younger people what would be a priority at the beginning. Anybody from, I believe, age 18 to 65. Uh, well, I, I haven't seen the definitive final recommendations yet from, CC, from the CDC, but uh, we'll, wait for that. we'll wait for that directive from both the state and the CDC. But whatever it is, it means more, more shots in people's arms, and right. that's the ultimate right oh, now. But there will be, it sounds like, um, specifications for each of the vaccines ultimately. Is that fair to say, Michael? Well, I think it'll become more generic over time. I mm. think at the beginning, I think there'll be more prioritization. My guess is that for people, you know, the older, older population might have the preference for the Pfizer and the Moderna and then the younger population for, for the J&J. But, uh, but I do think uh, people, there are so many people clamming for a vaccine that once you have the once you have the supply of whatever vaccine, people will want to take it. Right, because I know. The J&J I... vaccine is still is still seventy two percent efficacy, which is phenomenal. It's great. Right, exactly. What's interesting though, Michael, and listen, I don't want to be uh, like, you know, Tim and I joke, we're like, I'll take anyone <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah. um, but complicating matters is J&J is also testing a two-shot version of the vaccine. So it does suggest that it thinks adding a second shot could improve protection. And I think that's where the public gets a little nervous. You're a medical professional, you're working within this. How right. should we read something like that? Well, I would say if, for example, the one-dose vaccine gives you, uh, gives you the 70, 70% efficacy and uh, it protects against severe illness and the severity of cases and it gives you 86% efficacy in that regard, I think that's a win. What you really want is to protect people from getting really sick and to protect people from getting into the hospital. So if you have a vaccine, just like the flu vaccine, it uh, doesn't protect you universally uh, across the board, but it does prevent you from getting really seriously ill. So it's a win to have to be prevented from a severe illness and keeping you out of the hospital. And if any of the vaccines do that, um, then I think that's, again, a win-win for the public. I do wonder to what extent the, the general public is focused on that number, 72% versus 90 or 95% I, when it comes to mRNA. Go ahead. I honestly don't think that there's been enough. Some will that pay an awful lot of attention, but I think most people, from when I when I'm out there, they they just want a vaccine. 
Well, can I just I tell you? Make sure that, I want to make sure that they don't really get sick. Michael, a February survey found only 7% of people wanted a single-dose vaccine compared with 58% who said they prefer a two-dose series. This was um, a presentation to the Centers for Disease Control um, and, and some others. So, you know, we've learned so much about creating a vaccine and about efficacy, but at the same time, a little bit of knowledge can be dangerous. Yes, and you know, you know, recently, you know, what was it? Um, uh, AstraZeneca and even I think Pfizer basically indicating, if I'm correct, that they, they, you know, that there is real protection even with a one dose, even though we're giving two doses. I can tell you, if you want to expand the vaccination to the public in general, just giving one dose uh, across the board, it just makes life so much easier. We can do so much more. Right. And it would be a lot better having everybody having a 70 percent protection against illness instead of having a small number having 90 percent so when you look out at the next few months at the next six months at the rest of the year how do you see our world reopening what's the timeline that you're thinking about i think uh, that it will be a slow process i be incremental i think we'll be in a pretty good situation uh, by october november is my guess once we get everybody vaccinated, hopefully by July, August. You should see Tib's face. You should see Carol's face. <laughs> the yeah. two of us. Uh, We're just like, um, wow. But, but I think we got to be a little bit um, practical here because we're going to be different. Uh, the economy is going to come back in a different way. The use of technology and the changing nature of work that has evolved as a result of COVID is going to make everything different. People now realize that they don't have to be coming to the office every day to be effective and productive, that they can be working remotely. And that's going to affect every business, not just healthcare, but every single business. And I do think the economic implications of COVID, that businesses that are, will be less robust now, I want some businesses not coming back at all, that the economic implications of COVID, I think, will even be more difficult and more long-term than actually dealing with COVID itself. Wow. Uh, we had a big crisis for the past 12 months. By the way, the first COVID case that we received at Northwell was a year ago. Wow. So, uh, yeah. And we've seen 160,000 COVID patients wow. uh, since that time. Um, so we have to be patient here. The economy will start to come back. Uh, and I think by the end of the year, we will be doing, we'll be in a pretty good place, I believe. Well, we can certainly hope so. That was Michael Dowling, president and CEO at Northwell Health. Mike is also the author of Leading Through a Pandemic, and he also has a new book out. It's a memoir. It's called After the Roof Caved In, An Immigrant's Journey from Ireland to America. We talked all about it in our interview. You can hear the full one on our podcast feed. Sweet story. He's come a long way. It's it's an amazing story. It really is. Yeah, Yeah, I love that. Still ahead, we've been talking about vaccines rolling out, but still got to say, not equally. We know that that our community are the ones who are impacted the most in a negative way. On the heels of Black History Month, the founder of the Impact Network, Bishop Wayne Jackson, on issues with getting shots to African-Americans. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. 
Carol, a story on the Bloomberg this week talking all about how more than two months into the vaccine rollout here in the U.S., many communities of color have yet to even receive their first doses of the vaccine. Yeah, listen, this has been a problem that's been plaguing since the vaccine started being distributed. And it's a reminder of the inequalities that really still exist. Someone who has seen those disparities all too well, Bishop Wayne T. Jackson, he's founder and CEO of the Impact Network. It's a privately owned African-American inspirational TV network. They've got some 90 million in terms of their audience across the U.S. You can see it on a lot of the the cable and satellite TVs. Now, Bishop Jackson joined us to talk about the progress and struggles that African-Americans continue to experience, whether it's COVID or really the world generally. And the poorest of the poorest uh, community, uh, some of them have not even received one dose of the vaccine. And we know that that our community are the ones who are impacted the most in a negative way. And it, it just goes back to a lot of times people don't understand what uh, African-Americans have to go through just based on who, who we are and how we had to uh, be kidnapped. Our forefathers kidnapped from Africa, brought up here, stripped of their names, and was, you know, made to do free labor. Mm-hmm. And then kept back from being educated and then put a name on us that's so uh, degrading. And then when you look at things, you, you see, well, well, you know, they're bending out anger, this and that. No, if you walked into the shoes of a lot of African-Americans, especially when it comes to opportunity as being entrepreneurs, whatever, you, you know, you would feel the same way. But you can't be in that mode because it's not going to do you any good. But you have to get up and you have to fight and you have to fight for what's right and, and, and make sure that we are heard. And I really believe that, you know, even your report before I, I got on, mm-hmm. it just showed you that's just how it is. Why is it still just how it is? Well, because the people at the top, you know, uh, refuse to make changes and because they want to have the status quo. And we just need to make sure that we're able, you know, what you're reporting, with Bloomberg reporting about, you know, what's right and what's wrong. I really believe that the changes have to come from the top down. I'm I'm hoping and I'm praying, Carol, that we see uh, this new administration. Uh, and and I know uh, the president has has you know been very focused on uh, the disenfranchised and even with the uh, the African American people of color community to at least you know give us an opportunity to to, to be able to uh, help live the American dream. You know, my co-host Tim Stanovic, you know, reminded me when we were watching uh, President Biden, he was talking about um, the latest on the vaccine when we saw the 50 millionth individual in the U.S. get the vaccine. And he talked specifically about working with the private sector and educating the public on face masks and vaccination. But he also talked about a new initiative that he, that they were launching with private sector companies, asking them to encourage workers as well, and also about reaching out to community leaders to reach segments of the population that maybe aren't thinking about getting the vaccine or don't want to or are nervous about it, and understandably so, especially within the black community. Have you been approached um, by anyone in the administration or by political leaders to help with this? Oh, yes, we have. Um, matter of fact, um, our mayor, Mary Duggan, of mayor of Detroit, um, his office reached out to us, myself, our ministry. Uh, we have a very large ministry here in the city of Detroit. Uh, I guess about maybe 100,000 square feet. 
of, of um, space that we can help the community in. And what we're doing, working with the mayor's office, uh, and we're bringing in seniors and we're bringing in those who would normally not even go to maybe a public place, but they will take and have more confidence to go to a place they're familiar with, like a church in the neighborhood and so forth and so on. And we're doing um, this. We start in March the 20th uh, to just use our facility to be able to bring people in and uh, get them vac- vaccinated. I-, I believe that what we all need to do, we have to do this together, and I believe that, first of all, African Americans got to make sure that we're standing up and understand we can't wait for government or someone else to help. Also, our uh, corporations and our government, we need to look down on uh, the African American community and-, and be able to work with us and to be able to give us the tools that we need, especially finances. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we-, we don't have the finances to do what we right. need to do. And it, it just work it together. You know, Tim, access to the financial system. How many times do we have a conversation with someone where we talk about this? It's not equal access in terms of certainly when it comes to black and brown communities being able to really tap into the financial infrastructure here in the United States. Yeah, we talk about it a lot. The fact that there are so many unbanked and underbanked mm-hmm. Americans. And look, there are a lot of startups working on this right now, but right. a group of people who has largely been ignored by the big financial institutions. Yeah. And Bishop Wayne Jackson addressing that. He's founder and CEO of the Impact Network. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Up next, a big interview at Bloomberg this week. There are huge weaknesses to the Zoom world. J.P. Morgan Chase's Jamie Dimon working from home. He weighs in on that and more. You're going to be talking about this with your friends, your family, you name it, all weekend long. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So Tim, without a doubt, the big interview of the week at Bloomberg, it was all over the Bloomberg, online at Bloomberg.com, on TV, radio. It was on Quick Take. Yeah, it was. And look, Ed Hammond covered everything with Jamie Dimon, CEO and chair of J.P. Morgan Chase, preparing for intensified competition, the growth of fintech competition. You name it, they talked about it. It was an exclusive interview. And so joining us right now is Ed Hammond to talk to us about the conversation. First of all, the visual on it, Ed, I mean, you were in person with Jamie Dimon. I was. And look, the visual, um, a lot of kudos needs to go to the production team because they set up the most beautiful shot where you had, I think, the Chrysler building out of Jamie's window and the Empire State building out of my window, which, you know, is pretty unbeatable in terms of a backdrop. Um, and yeah, it was my first in-person uh, one-on-one, I think, pretty much for a whole year. I'd been holed up in California from March to December doing a lot of down the lines and a lot of, you know, over Zoom interviews, which are fine and we're all <laughs> quite used to them now, but they don't have the same chemistry that you get in person. You, you lose a lot of that sort of connectivity you get with the guests. So it was lovely to be back um, doing something one-on-one in person and in New York. So, and this was a long conversation. It was fantastic. We went over some of the things that you covered. What was your big takeaway? Um, well, there, there were a few, as you say, Tim, it was a long conversation, very generously, um, you know, timed from Jamie's point of view. And look, I, I think one of the things that really stood out to me is this this threat that he sees coming from, you know, whether it's the financial technology companies, whether it is the traditional technology companies, or indeed, whether it's the likes of Walmart and are going long into banking. And he's very, very cognizant of that and, and the need for big banks like JP Morgan to adapt to meet that threat head on. What was interesting from the conversation, and I think quite new, was 
you know, he talked about his willingness to basically spend their way out of this, whether it's through going and doing a large acquisition, whether it's through building out, you know, more partnerships. But he, he was very clear that he will spend what it takes. And they're looking at everything. I mean, I asked him about a couple of the really big players in uh, financial technology, Stripe and Adyen. And he said, it's, uh, I think the quote was, it's safe to assume we look at all these companies. It is a great conversation. We want to bring it to our audience, our listeners. Here is Bloomberg News Deal reporter Ed Hammond speaking exclusively with Jamie Dimon, JPMorgan Chase Bank chairman and CEO. FinTech has done or at least is partly responsible for is this sort of democratization of investing, obviously the rise of the retail trader, the Reddit crowd, Roaring Kitty, whatever you want to call it, is, is creating this narrative at the moment of David v. Goliath. Now, as a very prominent Goliath, do the Davids have a point? Is the system rigged? God, a very well, stacked against that, them that's at least. Well, in every bull market, this has happened in my life. So this is not a new phenomenon. And I do believe that people should learn how to invest their money, but they should do the homework. I mean, thinking you go on and just gamble and play, that's, that doesn't have a long-term success record. And so, But to the extent that people are learning and they're getting involved, so that, that's a good thing. So for some, it's going to end badly, and for some, it'll probably end up well. But the best investors learn over a long period of time how to be a good investor. Just like the best tennis players, the best boxers, the best media folks, the notion that you can be great at it because you, um, I m- remember my daughter made her first investment and it went up and I was thinking to myself, oh God, it would have been far better had it gone down. You learn, you learn a little bit more that way sometimes. Well, one bit of the industry that obviously has been savage to some extent recently is, is the short selling hedge funds. Do you think that industry is in crisis because of this effect we're seeing or this phenomena of the, the retail trader? Absolutely not. I, the, the, the retail train in dollars is a teeny, what you're talking about is a teeny wee little bit of the market. The market is global. I mean, something like $10 trillion is bought and sold every single day. And when we say investors, you're talking about retail investors, pension plans, hedge funds, money managers, uh, individuals. I've been buying and selling stocks since I've been 12 or 13. So I, I believe in that. But my dad taught me how to read a balance sheet when I was 13. It wasn't just, you know, maybe I was guessing a little bit, but... Uh, but I look, it opens it up, but no, there, there are legitimate complaints about short selling, more around transparency and the duplication of the vote of the ability to short sell the stock. There are legitimate issues around all these things. That, you know, if, if the regular is going to be looking at payment forward to flow, high frequency trading, uh, uh, disclosure about ownership, voting, short selling, those are good things. And, you know, to me, should people be able to pay for order flow? I, I think payment for order flow is a very complex subject. I think there should be much, maybe, but there should be much stricter rules about what you mean by that. It's not clear to me that everyone does the same payment for the flow. So if, if, I, if I'm paying a lot more to someone else or keeping a lot more for myself, you probably have the right to know. And there are certain disclosures that are not very good. Moving on to the, I guess, the biggest question in finance right now, which is, is the stimulus enough? Is it too much? Uh, even the interventionists can't seem to agree on this point. You have Larry Summers on the one side saying enough already. You have Janet Yellen, Jay Powell, and others on the other saying more is needed. What do you think? So getting through COVID is absolutely critical. And we're still in it, though God knows it looks like there's light at the end of the tunnel you know, by the beginning of the summer or something like that. But and it's not a binary subject. I think you know, Democrats and Republicans are like ships passing the night. There are legitimate complaints about stuff in this bill that has nothing to do with COVID. There are a lot of people suffering who need help. Both are true. So if you want to go through, you go through all the detail. Unemployed, they definitely need help. Small businesses, they definitely need help. People at the lower end, they definitely need help. Women who had to go home, who basically stopped working because they had to go take care of something like that, they definitely need help. You know, does every 
I don't know if you know this, but like half the states, revenues went up. They didn't go down. Do they need help? You know, and we're just throwing money at people at one point. So, and there will be another side to that mountain. So they should be cautious about overdoing it. Get us through the prom, get the country growing, but you know, don't try not to overdo it too much. But, but isn't the risk exactly that? That if you have places and states, people that don't need help and are getting the help, you overflood the system. Yeah. You do create this huge risk of inflation. Yeah, and the system already has a little bit of that. So if you look at what's in the system, it looks to us like there's a trillion dollars, a trillion of this unspent. That's before this billion nine, trillion nine. So there will be money, like, you know, there's a very good chance you're going to have a gangbuster economy for the rest of this year and, you know, easily into 2022. And the question is, does that overheat everything? And we just don't know yet. But I would put that on the things to worry about. You know, I wouldn't worry too much about it. I would worry more about COVID and nuclear war than I'd worry about that. But you know, I, would, I would suspect there's a pretty good chance you're going to see rates going up and, you know, people starting to worry about that at one point. Let's talk about COVID for a second. Uh, I've been very clear. I would not buy 10-year treasuries, just so you know. Um, on, on COVID, we are obviously doing this interview in person, which is fantastic. We're doing it in your offices here in New York, but still largely empty as are my offices, as probably are a lot of people's offices. How important is it to a business like JP Morgan to actually have people physically coming back to work? It's very important. I mean, I, look, I do think there'll be part of the world where a certain amount of people work from home permanently, certain sales, certain ops, so you can track the productivity, et cetera. I think there'll be a large portion who permanently work in the office. Think of our branches, cash management, probably most of the trading floors, et cetera. And there'll be some hybrids where you spend two days, two weeks at home and two weeks in the office or three weeks at home, a week in the office, or three days and two days and two days and three days. But, so I think it will reduce the need for commercial real estate, but there are huge weaknesses to the Zoom world. I mean, most of us learned by an apprenticeship system by you know, seeing mistakes, going to trips, how do you handle a client, how do you handle a problem. So it's hard to inculcate culture and character and all those things when you have the Zoom world. Spontaneous combustion, it goes away. Hard to manage, you know, it's hard to be very critical. You got 15 people on the screen. So what before was like a, a deep dive question now looks a little bit rude. That was Jamie Dimon, J.P. Morgan Chase Bank CEO and chairman, talking exclusively with Bloomberg News deal reporter Ed Hammond. It's a great conversation. It's part of the conversation. So if you want to hear or watch all of it, check it out at Bloomberg.com on the Bloomberg terminal. You can hear it, watch it, all that good stuff. One thing that was really important too, Jamie has had some health scares. Um, I know you talked about that with him. Yeah, we did right at the top. Um, I think it's uh, it was pretty much to the day since he suffered a, a very major health scare. He had a torn aorta and was rushed to hospital, um, and and luckily had it fixed and has been able to return to work. He said he's feeling good. He's back exercising. He's you know been in the office I think most days since the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was obviously you know it was it was great to hear that from him and uh, a nice hopefully a nice way to mark the uh, the one year anniversary. Ed, when, when you do an interview like this and you prep so much, you go in sort of trying to anticipate what the subject is, is going to say, I imagine. Um, I'm wondering if, if any of his comments were, were different than what you expected. Well, I intended to say I'm so smart that I just did it on the fly, but that would be extremely dishonest. I did prep a lot, um, and I did, as you rightly say, try and anticipate to some extent how he might respond. I think there were a couple of things that stood out to me. I mean, look, the one was when we talked about SPACs, which have been a very, very hot ticket this year. Obviously, you know, a new special purpose acquisition company seems to get launched every day. Uh, and, and I asked him pretty candidly, you know, why JP Morgan are doing 
pretty badly in the SPAC space. They're number one in M&A globally this year to date. They're pretty much number one in IPOs. And I think in SPACs, they're barely breaking the top 10. Well, listen, it's a great interview, um, Ed. And thank you so much for spending some time with us to talk about it. Bloomberg News deal reporter Ed Hammond speaking exclusively with J.P. Morgan Chase Bank Chairman and CEO Jamie Dimon. Check it out at Bloomberg.com. Ed, thank you. That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovec. More ahead in our next hour, including Jamie Dimon just talking about working from home. We're going to have more on that, including companies moving toward a four-day work week. Carol, this sounds nice. (laughs) Crossing my fingers. Yeah, it's happening. But you know what? Don't hold your breath. (laughs) Not happening for us. All right, plus, in keeping (laughs) with that, one commercial and residential real estate investor doing a deep dive on how hybrid working could impact the U.S. coasts. And the former CFO of Impossible Foods moved on and is now president of App Harvest. It's an indoor green tech farming venture. It went public using a SPAC. Gotta say, if I wasn't doing this, I'd like to be working for App Harvest. Also, Michael Moe, he's an investor in some of the best-known tech companies on fixing some of the biggest issues plaguing our economy. All that and more to come. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine, plus global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovic. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including. It's beginning to happen a little bit. Why the president of Swig Equity says real estate. It's rebounding. Plus, indoor farming. Kind of makes sense that the former CFO of Impossible Foods is working on this. You're right, Tim. We're talking about David Lee, former CFO and former COO of Impossible Foods, now the president of App Harvest. App Harvest looking for a way to change how we produce food. Startup tech investor Michael Moe looking for a way to do capitalism better. First up, though, a couple of stories in the magazine this week by Bloomberg News. This was a lot of fun. We caught up, Tim, with German business reporter Stefan Nicola. One story was on Tesla needing to tap Europe's corporate car market. The other story, well, it shot up and stayed at the top of the most read on the Bloomberg. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. I mean, it's about the four-day work week gaining popularity without costing productivity. And that's where we started with Stefan, who was in Berlin, and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber, who joined us from Brooklyn. Avon is a Berlin-based tech company that um, when it went into lockdown last year, it realized that its employees suffered from stress. And it gave employees half a Friday off uh, to sort of ease into the weekend. And that experiment went so well sales, employee engagement, and client satisfaction all rose that in January, Avon decided to go a step further. And they rolled out a four-day week for the entire company with no cuts in salaries or benefits. And the CEO says it's working really well. Joel Weber, I'm thinking, all right, sign me up. Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel <laughs> Weber is here on the Access Line in Brooklyn. I feel like as we're all thinking about Joel getting back to work post-pandemic, we're trying to figure out, is it a hybrid? Are we working from home? Are we going to the office? What is it? Uh, yeah, you know, more importantly, like if you're going to do a four-day work week, which which day do you excise <laughs> from that work week? You know, is, exactly. it, is it Friday is the obvious choice, but like Monday, there's a totally strong case for that. Yeah. It'd be Wednesday, nice to get rid of Mondays. Yeah, really. Wednesday was like the out-of-the-box uh, one that, that a colleague said, like, why, why bother with Wednesday? So 
But but Stephen, I, the uh, the thing that I thought was most interesting about this is like even if you lop off a day, whichever day of the week it happens to be, it doesn't seem to affect productivity. What what did we learn about that? Yeah, so uh, there are studies out there that productivity isn't dropping. Uh, in some cases, um, we, we are seeing uh, increased productivity even. And uh, the CEO of the company told me he saw the same. Uh, um, and he said that employees find ways to work smarter and not less, but smarter, and they're just as productive. And, and just uh, um, going back to the Monday, Wednesday, Friday discussion, he, he, he said that Fridays are the most popular days to take off, followed by Monday and then actually Wednesday, as he suggested, because it gives people a nice break in the middle of the week and they can restart, recharge. I'm just going to say Fridays I like because that's when we sometimes have a wine guest and we can drink wine on air. <laughs> so I'm not getting rid of Fridays. Let's get rid of Mondays. Let's get rid of Mondays. Nobody says you have a case of the Fridays. <laughs> so, Stefan, you know what I'm wondering, though? Are we still productive these four days? Like when, we, when they cut it down, what did they find? Yeah, they did find that that productivity is is basically the same or even improved, and uh, it's that you know workers tend to be more focused during the four days, and they tend to put a lot of effort into those uh, four days uh, that they are either in the office or or working from home. Um, interestingly enough, um, the CEO of that company also uh, um, expected. You know, productivity to, you know, uh, suffer when he sent all of his employees at home. And he, he said clearly that didn't happen, much the contrary. Workers work just as, as well from home and uh, uh, lopping off uh, another day uh, was the natural uh, choice for him. And he said it, it really restored a work-life balance that has, uh, you know, left him uh, energized for the rest of the week. Hey, Stefan, I want to uh, move to another story that you wrote talking about Tesla. Speaking of the corporate world, you got to get to those four days of work somehow. And it turns out the (laughs) European corporate car market is huge. This was really surprising for me to see. Um, A lot of companies are uh, companies account for a large proportion of cars sold uh, in Europe, right? Yeah, that, that's correct. Uh, around 60% of new cars sold in Europe are bought by corporate customers. So that is a huge market. And uh, uh, it's worth about $360 billion. And it's a market the local automakers dominate. Uh, um, and of course, Tesla uh, has a hard time cracking that market, partly because it's lacking servicing stations. Uh, one company told me that uh, you know, its its workers would love to to get Teslas, but the company is is not comfortable offering those cars as a perk uh, because um, they are afraid that these uh, employees would take uh, time off from work to to deal with repairs. And uh, the likes of Mercedes, BMW, and Volkswagen they offer same day fixes nearby for these uh, company cars that that these workers get as a perk, and and that's why uh, they're they're still. Uh, the favorite model for, for many companies. Well, that was Stefan Nicola, German business reporter at Bloomberg News, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. What do you think, Carol? Would you do it? Uh, you know, I have had a four-day work week in the past working for another media organization. It was nice to kind of have that longer weekend. You really felt like you got a break. Um, Did the four days feel more intense? Uh, sometimes. 
sometimes, yeah. Okay. Sometimes there were longer days, but I'm kind of cool with that. Yeah, I'm okay with kinda it. Kind of like packing it in. Can we call the New York Stock Exchange and the markets and just say, could we just stop trading on Yeah, they'll Fridays? totally listen to us. <laughs> or just stop trading on Mondays. <laughs> All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, commercial real estate occupancy slowly making its way back. That's right. And Carol, you, you posed this question to our next guest. The quote from Jamie Dimon, we caught up with him, our Ed Hammond yeah. did, and you know he's talked about remote work will reduce the need for commercial real estate. You agree with him? Uh, I, I. The answer to that question from the president of Swig Equities. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So last hour you heard Bloomberg's Ed Hammond catching up with J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon. It was an exclusive interview, a killer interview. And they talked about how, Tim, remote work will reduce the need for commercial real estate. And so when we had on Kent Swig of Swig Equities, commercial and residential real estate investor, we had to ask him about that. Yeah, that's right, Carol, especially as Swig Equity specializes in properties right here in New York where we are and in California as well. Uh, you guys started out by talking all about whether or not he's seeing more people return to offices. It's beginning to happen a little bit. Um, I would say the average uh, right now in New York City of occupancy, you know, people going into the building, not least per se, uh, is about 12%, maybe 13%. So it, it hasn't changed all that significantly. However, um, the activity level that we're seeing in terms of commercial, in terms of tenants starting to look and starting to become more active, and certainly on the residential front, it's as active as it's been since, you know, the past six, seven years. Um, so that's a good sign going forward. So I'd say new deal transaction volume is starting to pick up. I don't know if you heard the the quote from Jamie Dimon. We caught up with him, our Ed Hammond yes. did. And you know he's talked about remote work will reduce the need for commercial real estate. You agree with him? Uh, I, I don't uh, entirely. And, I, and, and for two reasons. Um, first, I'll qualify by saying uh, I think that some, I think the idea of working from home is something that is part of our workforce today and has not been, had not been previously. So that part, I agree with him. However, I don't know that it's going to translate directly into, into a less amount of office space being occupied. Um, so whereas people, uh, there was Stanford University did a study uh, uh, just before COVID, um, which was interesting, saying that about 29% of the people said, of the workforce around the United States said they would be interested in working from home one day a week. Mm -hmm. And there was about 35% that said not a chance. Um, that, I think, would be very interesting to see where we are today, certainly. Right. Um, but I think one day a week, somewhere in there, people will be working from home. I think it's somewhat efficient to do that. Again, if you have a lot of emails one day and you want to work from home and answer them and not have right. office distraction or telephone Can distraction, yes, it's good. Working from home is a factor and will continue uh, past the COVID um, pandemic when we recede from that. However, I, that doesn't mean that we're going to translate into fewer amount or less amount of square footage being occupied. And the reason is, is because I think the trend since 1987 has been going to, you know, more compact, more jammed together 
together offices from, uh, you know, in 1987 was about 350 square feet per person, and we dropped down to about 175 square feet per person. I think that trend is going to be moving the other way because I think health and safety and and traffic flow is going to increase in terms of its uh, importance. So, um, you know, taking our temperatures going in during flu season, I think, is going to be part of everyday life. I think having occupancy of a little bit more space per person is going to be a part of our life. So mm. I don't see it translating into, into taking that much less space. Listen, you're, you know, someone who I can tell loves New York like I do. Uh, I think that's safe to say. And I it kind of kills me when I like drive down an avenue and see though how much real estate you know especially retail space and not a surprise I guess um, but it's rough to see so much boarded up and empty and I do wonder what's what's the downfall I mean is there the commercial real estate market does it come undone or are you starting to see the private equity investors and other investors I don't know you know looking at some distressed properties are you looking at distressed properties well, yes, we are. Um, okay. We're looking at distressed properties, both commercial and residentially. Um, but specifically with the retail, um, retail has been devastated. Absolutely no question about it. Retail depends on massive street traffic, people going out and feeling safe, uh, all of which has not happened. But we are now with the third vaccine that's been cleared. Um, we're looking at a summer where, you know, we're going to have a very high percentage of our population uh, inoculated against the vaccine. And I think well, people will be starting to go back out. Now, what's going to happen is, what has happened and it's going to continue to happen is rents for retail is going to, are going to continue to drop, and they have dropped. Um, retail tenants have been hurt, and I think we're going to end up with a game of musical chairs where tenants are going to be moving from one place to the other. And yes, it's going to take time to get the restaurants back up and operating, but they will come back up and they will be operating. And next, the hotels will start getting back up and operating. And it's not going to happen in a month, but it's certainly going to take... You know, it's going to take six months, seven months before this stuff starts really coming back. Mm -hmm. But the energy level of people and the frustration level of people who've been inside for a long, long time <laughs> that want to get out and want to go do something is clearly there, led by the young population. If you go look in Miami right now, for instance, mm -hmm. which is a different environment completely, and, and I won't give an opinion, you know, of Governor DeSantos and what, his, what he's doing versus Governor Cuomo in our state, mm -hmm. but the restaurants, <laughs> nightclubs are heavily populated. Uh, whether safe or not is another thing, but it just tells you that even in the middle of the pandemic, people's desire to go out and want to go do something is certainly there. So I, I think it comes back. Yes. Well, is there, though, an ultimate fallout or long-term impact, impact on New York, though, or is it just a case of we're going to be using space differently? Um, I think the ultimate, there is a long-term impact, I think, on, on, on the hotel industry particularly, okay. because so the hotels have been closed for quite a long time. And um, I think the impact is, is on twofold. One, I think management and unions have to work together, because under the contracts with the union contracts, hotels couldn't open up partially, because the contract said that they could, you know, if you open up, you have to have a certain number of staff. I think it was not thought about for a pandemic environment. So I think that will change and allow for, the, uh, you know, it would have allowed for hotels to partially open, but didn't. And two, um, there are a lot of hotels that just may not make it. And I think they may be converted into residential or some alternative space. So, you know, the, and, and they are very dependent also on the airline industry and travel. So right. um, I think that's the last 
piece that starts to come back. I think that the residential market uh, is certainly coming back right now. It's very, very active. Um, we, we, had, you know, we had over 40 contracts signed, over $4.4 million last week. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen anything like that since August of 2015. Who's coming um, back? So, or what, is that people in New York just getting more space for a better price, or what is it? Well, it's a combination of everything. Um, uh, the, at first in January and uh, the beginning of a little bit of February, um, you, what you saw is a lot of, uh, of buying in one bedroom and studios because to get on the merry-go-round when it was traveling quickly, mm-hmm. um, to use a, 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 you know, a, a, a little bit of a phrase, um, it was very difficult. And you jumped on, if you'd have jumped on and you missed, it hurt. That was president of Swig Equities, Kent Swig. You know, Carol, another story on the Bloomberg this mm-hmm. week that got a lot of attention was the declining rents, especially in Manhattan and for residential and, and how they're starting to attract this new generation of New Yorkers, people who always wanted to live in New York and now see this as the opportunity. Right, exactly. Now they can afford it. All right, still to come on Bloomberg Business Week, food products and services seeing a lot of disruption and innovation during the pandemic. The former CFO and COO of Impossible Foods on his new venture as president of App Harvest. That's coming up. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. So, Tim, a guest familiar to our audience, and the last time we caught up with him, he was the CFO of Impossible Foods, also at the time a board member of the green tech ag startup App Harvest. And now president of App Harvest, now trading under the ticker symbol APPH after going public, get this, through a SPAC, perhaps not that surprising, <laughs> so hot right now. It's also a certified B Corporation. Yeah, we're talking about David Lee. We began our discussion talking about the news of his company going public. At App Harvest, we recognize the urgency of the mission we have required that we find long-term partners and access capital to scale our business fast. And with the ability to partner with Novus Capital and now to be traded on NASDAQ, it's a wonderful sign that investors are ready for companies that are making a better food company. You know, we like to think our product using a fraction of the water and producing a, a delicious tomato for now, but more to come will appeal to consumers, but we're now seeing that our company, uh, a company that treats its employees better, that's better for the environment and for consumers' health, is being appreciated by investors as well. Yeah, it's interesting to see, and I feel like a lot of investors are looking, you know, I talked about innovation disruption. We've seen it in a lot of spaces, um, and I think, you know, everybody's now watching the food space very closely. You mentioned, David, tomato. You mentioned less water. It's indoor. There's no chemical pesticides. The yield uh, is about 30 times more. You're doing it at Appalachia. That's where you're doing it. Um, so in an interesting part of our country, um, specifically, we I called it a green tech ag startup. But I feel like you are doing a lot more in terms of the cycle and supply chain of food. What is it about the technology that to you really stands out and is very strikingly different from what we know and we've come to uh, understand is how we get all of our food? Absolutely. You know, I like to think that App Harvest is revolutionizing food from seed all the way to the plate. That means that the non-GMO 
beefsteak tomato seed that we grow in these enormous greenhouses. Since we have a 60-acre indoor farm, nearly 2.8 million square feet under glass in the heart of central Appalachia, that we not just grow great tomatoes from the seed, but that we employ highly skilled workers in the United States who can have a great living wage and make a product that uses 90% less water, have no chemical pesticides, and tastes great. You know, it, it's from seed to plate that the whole company is designed to be better. And it's whether it's our nanobubble technology that allows us to have the right amount of nutrients and oxygen in the recycled rainwater, or the fact that we're looking at automation to help our human employees, the, the data intensity, we have AI so we can watch how our plants each grow. It's all of that that allows us to stop shipping in nearly two-thirds of the vine crops we import into, into the United States from outside the country. Right. It's all the way from seed to plate. Um, that's what we're seeking to do here at Up Harvest. I think last time you were on, we talked a little bit about this, but what about power efficiencies? Because I know one of the concerns has been about some of hydroponic and some of these in-house big greenhouses is the use of power. Yeah. Well, we're working hard to leverage, for example, passive solar and new technology. You know, we like to use the natural uh, place that we're located for the recycled wastewater and for the fact that we can use the natural sunlight that peers through our farms. You know, the, the country just went through a lot of tough weather in many parts. Mm -hmm. And what I was gratified to see is the hard workers that harvest in our Moorhead farm, you know, sometimes they had to show up in a tractor, but they showed up and our business model ended up being incredibly resilient, much more resilient than an open field farm would be. Um, and so we'll get better and better on everything, on how we use water, on how we reduce our power consumption. Uh, but for now, we thought it was important to create a big step forward for right. U.S. agriculture um, in Kentucky. To be clear, I'm a huge believer in impossible foods. And between you, me, and I guess the rest of the world on this call, I, I exercised every single option that I was granted because I really believe in the mm. business we built. It was interesting. I was listening to some of the commentary on your show. And, you know, when 90% of your consumers at Impossible Foods are meat eaters, meat eaters like you, mm -hmm. and when you can raise $1.5 billion from sophisticated investors, kind of shows that the world really is ready. All right, full disclosure, I've tried the Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat, some of the burgers, sausages. Um, I like them. They're not, though, a big part of my diet, at least not yet. So they were a big part of my diet over the summer when yeah. I was somewhere where we were like grilling outside a lot, which was fantastic. I think I probably, um, you know, ate them as much as I eat. I'm not a vegetarian, but I probably ate those as much as I eat regular meat. Yeah. Listen, it's still such a small part of the market. Um, but nonetheless, we're seeing growth. We're seeing, I feel like you and I constantly are talking about it and having more and more companies who are involved in the plant-based food world. And that was David Lee, former CFO of Impossible Foods, now president of App Harvest. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Our next guest writes about what he calls, quote, better capitalism. It's GSV Asset Management's co-founder, Michael Moe, on the Mission Corporation. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. 
Michael Moe is co-founder of GSV Asset Management, author of the Global Silicon Valley Handbook. His firm, Tim Mann, he's invested in a few companies you might have heard of, Facebook, Twitter, Spotify, Dropbox, Lyft, Snap, a lot more. He's also incubated and accelerated hundreds of companies and has run innovation programs for the likes of Google, 3M, Cisco, and Fidelity. He's a great person to talk to about tech trends and the startup world. Yeah, and Carol, his, his boot camp has helped others relaunch mm-hmm. their own careers. He's got a new book out, The Mission, How Contemporary Capitalism Can Change the World One Business at a Time, is a conversation happening all over right now. People yeah. questioning, is it time for a new type of capitalism? Exactly. You guys spoke all about it. Yeah, we did. And like so many of us, though, he's looking forward to the day when we can emerge from lockdowns. That's where we started. We're waiting to have things open up a little bit, but... Um you know, the, the world's moving ahead nonetheless. I mean, I think the, the acceleration to digital just is um, pretty stunning. Uh, but but um, listening to uh, President Biden and talk about being able to move forward with the the, the, the vaccine, um, that that's encouraging news as well. Well, and I think you and others, and your book really gets into this, you know, we are at this interesting time where so many trends whether it's digitization and other trends, have been accelerated because of the pandemic. It's also a time, though, that we are spending a lot of money to help out the economy, and we can think about how to do it better. Can we make you know, the world greener? Can we solve climate change at the same time? You write about better capitalism. What is better capitalism? Well, essentially, you know, Adam Smith's Invisible Hand, which uh, created the, the concept of capitalism, uh, that invisible hand's broken, and we see that in a variety of ways, and that was certainly true before the pandemic that that became more fractured during the pandemic and yet we don't believe the um, you know the solution to this is to cut the hand off it's really to to fix it and fix it with um, an evolution which we call contemporary capitalism that is that we think that the great businesses of tomorrow will combine the ambition of a for-profit with the heart of a not-for-profit. It's this idea of multiple constituents, you know, so it's not just the, the, the shareholder, it's also the employee, it's the consumer, it's the community, it's the environment. Right. And, and, and at the center of all that is a company needs to have a sense of, of, of purpose and meaning to what they do. How is it different than, say, the conscious capitalism that John Mackey, co-founder and CEO of Whole Foods, and, and a guest, too, on our program, has written about? What's different? Yeah, I'd say that, again, I, I love what he's done, and he's certainly an influence on our thinking. I think partly what we tried to do was both to put um, some, some we, we have seven declarations in the book talking about, we think, uh, you know, principles that companies that want to reflect this new contemporary capitalism um, should, should aspire to. We purposely kept them as general because we think this is going to get um, evolve over time into more specific ways that the companies are able to reflect that you know their their purpose, their mean, their success is is, is driven by um, fundamentals that are beyond just you know, making the most profit that they can in that quarter. Michael, reading in and prepping for uh, our conversation today, I was thinking, all right, so how does China complicate this process of kind of a better capitalism? Because don't you need global cooperation in order for it to really work on all levels? Yeah, I mean, again, I think the forces at work here are human forces and and it's, it's gravity. And so as much as China has... Um, its own hybrid form of capitalism, 
mm. you know, uh, Chinese capitalism. I mean, there's, there's, you know, people are people around the world. And what people are seeking, and, the, and whether they say it this in an articulate way or not, is people are looking for purpose. They're looking for meaning in their life and in their work. And so people being inspired or happy, you know, 70% of employees either um, don't like their work or are neutral towards their work. And you look at the research, the science behind that, there's two reasons for that. They don't feel like their, their position matters. I mean, they don't have a purpose to what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And they don't think their company has a purpose to what they're doing. Or if it, they do, it's not well articulated, and they don't feel like they're part of that team. And so, I mean, that's just a fundamental reality. Okay, so you talk about people and the importance of, you know, what basically what their work is about. Yeah, I mean, people are seeking meaning and purpose. Right. And, and that, that's, that, that, I think, is what drives motivation, and that's going to be true whatever the political system is. No, it's, listen, you know, I have a lot of conversations with my younger nieces and nephews and even my own daughter, who's, you know, a teenager, and they really care about this stuff in terms of what companies and, you know, leaders stand for. I do wonder, too, though, how does, you know, we live in, certainly in my world, is a publicly, you know, held market world <laughs> where I know we we keep hearing conversations about multiple stakeholders and I do wonder about it, you know, if, if every multiple stakeholder is as important as the other, but does the public markets complicate this idea of better capitalism or profit with a purpose? I know it doesn't have to, but I just wonder how it complicates it. Well, I think it ultimately will be reflected in multiples paid for companies that have sustainable values to their business model. Mm-hmm. So you might be able to make more money this quarter because you were able to do shortcuts or make decisions that um, might benefit the, the, the near-term numbers. But the multiple that investors are going to put on that, in my view, um, is going to be lower. And you're starting to see this shift. Is really take, I mean, this kind of river of business is flowing in a different way than it's ever flowed before. And so as you talk about young people, you talk about your daughter and your, and your uh, nieces and nephews. I mean, this is, a, this is a phenomena that's really embedded in you know, what people you know, are looking for and what they want. And that ultimately, ultimately, all companies are valued the same way, which is future cash flows discounted back to the day. Companies that have these mission-driven values are really, you know, that, that really equates to more of a sustainable growth, more sustainable business model which should mean that their future profits are going to be greater, which means that, you know, that what, how the market ultimately values those should be higher. Well, and it's interesting, too, because when I talk to, you know, I, you mentioned my nieces and I mentioned my nieces, and, you know, there is a feeling that capitalism is bad. And, you know, I, I try to remind them that it builds a lot of things that we take for granted today. Um, you know, what is your... What would be your message to someone if they say, listen, capitalism just doesn't work anymore? Yeah, I mean, again, young people where 60% believe that socialism is a better system than capitalism. It's not that they're ignorant or that they don't know history. What they've experienced is a system that feels rigged. You see growing inequality. You see where, you know, the people running companies have made, you know, the average CEO makes 400 times the average worker. And fewer and fewer people feel like they're getting a, having a fair system. Today's world, basically, your future depends on, well you, on how well you select your parents, mm-hmm. which is not that's not a fair system. So people are looking for a, a better system, and that's what we're saying. You can't. You know, socialism is is Owen forty two, so we know that. <laughs> so it's really how do you, as I said before, how do you fix 
the invisible hand of capitalism that's broken right. and make it better and make it reflect where the world's going. So what's out there on the horizon that gives you hope, whether it's leaders, whether it's companies, whether it's the younger generation that gives you hope that capitalism can be better? Well, I, I, I think you do see it in the young entrepreneurs and what they are doing in terms of the businesses they're creating. It's not just how can they get rich. In fact, most of them are saying, how can they dent the universe for good? How can they change the world for good? You talk about Lyft as a company that you know, had uh, you know, good numbers to report um, you know, in interim. And the stock reflecting that. Well, the fact is Lyft as a company has embedded values that I think uh, reflect a lot of what we talk about contemporary capitalism. This mm-hmm. whole vaccine, this last 12 months of what we've gone through, this race to create a vaccine, which is just extraordinary what's happened. This is cooperation between big pharmaceutical companies, which aren't exactly the most loved, you know, and not the best behavior even. Right. But all of a sudden, it was sort of this kind of rallying for good, for doing, making the society better, not, not from how they make more money. So I think those kind of signs are encouraging. Hey, listen, just got about 30, 40 seconds here. Just quickly, Michael, if there was one government policy, I know you talk about, you know, better tax incentive structures. If there's one policy that could come down that would really make a difference here, uh, what would it be? And just quickly, if you could. Removing friction Mm -hmm. from the the whole startup ecosystem. And I think it really embedded more than just tax policy. It's liberating companies to, to tack big problems and have investors support those problems. We talk a lot about incentives when we're, we're talking about this stuff, and mm-hmm. I think one of the challenges that a lot of executives face and, and management faces when it comes to publicly traded companies is that they are being judged by shareholders quarter by quarter, so the incentives don't exactly line up with these long-term goals. Don't you feel about that? Like when we talk about kind of a, a bad moment for a publicly held company or, or we're focusing on these quarterly earnings, I've always had a kind of love-hate with them because it's a great gut check on the companies, but it's also like, hey, you missed your numbers because you're investing for the future. Is that, you know... Are we not thinking about it in the right way? Look, I think it's an important conversation to have, and I think yeah. it's one that a lot of executives are having right now, especially when it comes to how they think about forecasts and what type of guidance they're giving. Right, exactly. That's GSV Asset Management co-founder Michael Moe. That full conversation, you can find it at Bloomberg.com on our podcast feed. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovec. Be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show Monday through Friday. It starts at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg. Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. And also check out our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. You can find that at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And that's where you'll find our extra podcast this week. It's the president and founder of Habits of Waste. It's a nonprofit focused on reducing environmental impact, her thoughts on combating climate change and reducing waste. And you can also see me on Bloomberg Quick Take, available at Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. You're on Quick Take? I'm on Quick Take. Good to know. Bloomberg Business Week. It's available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Have a good and safe weekend, everyone. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.